Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist uh, based in private practice in central London. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Professor Anthony David. And we're both together at the annual Congress of the Royal College of Psychiatrists here in Edinburgh. Professor Tony David is a professor of cognitive neuropsychiatry and he's from the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London. And he's just delivered one of the keynote addresses at the very launch of the conference. These are regarded as, as very important talks. I mean, the whole Congress turned up. There were several thousand people in the auditorium, um, and I was sitting in the audience. And um, Professor David gave a very interesting talk about the eminent author, uh, writer, uh, and uh, neurologist, Oliver Sacks. So first of all, uh, Tony, why did you pick Oliver Sacks to talk about? Well, thanks, Raj. Yes, I, I chose Oliver Sacks uh, because he was uh, very much a hero of mine. I've read many of his books, envied his talent as a writer and as a, an observer. But really, I was being a bit cheeky in that I was using the life story of Oliver Sacks to ask the question, why do people choose psychiatry as a career and why some avoid psychiatry as a career? So it did seem to me that uh, Oliver Sacks, whose sensibilities one often thinks of as being very psychiatric. You know, he's interested in people's stories, their emotions, their lives, their disabilities, that we, I, I, I suppose, arrogantly think are the preserve of psychiatry, whereas the neurologists, obviously, are kind of stereotyped view of them is that they're brilliant doctors, they're obviously knowledgeable, interested in the brain and the mind, but they don't want to get too bogged down in the other stuff. So, in a way, why wasn't Sachs a psychiatrist? So, I kind of speculated on that. Never met him. This was all based on his autobiography, On the Move, published just uh, shortly before his death, actually, and his other writings, and just my speculations. So, um, I'm going to kick off with a, with a bit of psychoanalysis. I'm going to psychoanalyze um, why you gave the talk. I think, I think you, you're a fan of Oliver Sachs, and you're a bit disappointed that he didn't pick psychiatry, perhaps? Well, um, perhaps that's true. Um, it was more just the question. And in a way, why I thought it would be a good thing to talk about at this meeting, where we had our president, Simon Wesley, talking about recruitment to psychiatry. Uh, actually, the problems recruitment. Why is it that we don't have enough junior doctors or medical students choosing psychiatry, because I think it is a wonderful uh, specialty. I also did neurology for a little while before switching to psychiatry. I never regretted that change. So so perhaps, I mean, obviously, my allegiance is with psychiatry, but I respect and really enjoy the neuro bit of psychiatry. That's why uh, I, I do sort of neuropsychiatry in my clinical role. Before we get into talking a bit more about your talk, specifically to do Oliver Sacks, let's talk about your title, Cognitive Neuropsychiatry, and what neuropsychiatry is. Because I think one of the reasons why medical students aren't picking psychiatry is they have a very stereotyped view of the ambit of the subject. They may be quite surprised about what you cover in Cognitive Neuropsychiatry. Could you say something about that? Well, cognitive neuropsychiatry is really an academic discipline rather than a clinical discipline. And it's about trying to understand psychiatric phenomena like hallucinations, delusions, impulsivity, in terms of their cognitive mechanisms, that is their psychological mechanisms. And inevitably, that goes and maps onto the brain. And the way that we get into neuropsychiatry is usually because of damage to the brain, causing perturbation in those features, so that we can sometimes argue back 
to what were the psychological processes that went wrong, what bits of the brain therefore uh, underlie those processes. So yes, I think um, some medical students don't appreciate um, the brain underpinnings for a lot of psychiatry, and I think would be interested to know that that is a, a really vibrant field of our subject. On the other hand, I think overselling the neuroscience is also not going to help us uh, because then someone would turn around and say, well, you know, if I'm so interested in neuroscience in the brain, I might as well be a neurologist. I mean, the point about psychiatry is that it is about the neuroscience, but it's also about the social science um, and the humanistic science and the psychological science. It's bringing them all together that makes psychiatry so interesting and challenging. So let's talk a bit about Oliver Sacks himself, mm-hmm. the man. Tell me a bit about him. And um, you, in your talk, you talked a bit about his childhood and how his life evolved. Yeah. So he was the son of doctors, um, and he had an older brother that became a doctor. Uh, of course, he was, he was sort of educated, brought up in the 40s and 50s, uh, a different time, of course. He also had a brother developed schizophrenia at quite a young age and he writes about this in in his autobiography so i i just thought well that's bound to influence how you see the specialties there were also things about his private life he he was gay and his parents his mother especially couldn't accept that called it an abomination uh, i think that's probably why he decided to leave england and go to america just to get away from it uh, and I bring that in to a speculation. Does a gay man at that time think that psychiatry is a good place to be? Uh, it's a tolerant specialty. It likes individual differences. On the other hand, at that time, homosexuality was not only illegal, but it was a psychiatric disorder. Might that have been an aversion for sex? But anyway, he obviously, like most of us, uh, stumbled into various uh, bits of the profession. Uh, he ended up doing neurology. And then, of course, as, as, as everyone probably knows, he was on a ward for patients who had suffered from this uh, post-encephalitic Parkinson's syndrome and was the first to try out L-DOPA in their treatment. This led to him writing Awakenings. And it was that sort of depth of study that I think brought him to the world attention. And I think he realized he had a gift for describing medicine and science in an accessible way. Tell us a bit more about his descriptions, because you were, you were drawn, you, you, you liked reading Sachs. What in yes. particular was it that he was writing about that you found so interesting? Well, I think it was that he managed to, in the main, be very accurate scientifically. His medical descriptions are usually on the mark, but through observation, and it was his very, very detailed and patient observation, he was able to uncover all sorts of other things. So it wasn't just the person's symptoms, but it was their reaction to them. And it was how their strengths as well as their weaknesses contributed to how they presented. And then, of course, he, he tended to get to know certain patients extremely well, kind of following them around and almost living with them. So that brought him into contact with their social world, which was he was often very good at describing as well. So that seemed to me a very psychiatric approach, and it was using skills that all psychiatrists should aspire to. 
There's another aspect of this that lends itself to psychiatry, which goes back to the literary endeavour. He, mm. he he loved writing and telling the story. Freud famously um, used the case history mm. and and a, and a a very literary development of describing people. So another that's another link that poses yes. the question: Why wasn't he more more psychiatric, yes. more of a psychiatrist? Well, and in a way, I don't think Freud was a psychiatrist. Freud was also a neurologist who got interested in people's lives through neurology. Well, I, I think one of the things war is the ambiguity that psychiatrists have to deal in. The not knowing what's the cause of the problem, uh, not knowing whether the person really wants to get better or somehow stuck in a sick role. Those sorts of slightly ethical dimensions. My, my speculation is that Sachs found that rather aversive. Uh, he didn't really want to deal with that. Uh, he was, in that sense, quite traditional. And I think that's why, in the end, he found neurology more convivial than psychiatry. And there's something about the use of L-Dopa, the fact there's a magic bullet yes. that, that fixes the thing, that I think yes. he's, he's, he wants that kind of treatment. He doesn't want the more complicated, ambiguous treatment that psychiatry often ends up delivering. I think that that's true, although, of course, he's sensitive and uh, humble enough to see that that was hubristic in a way, and people, uh, after an initial cure, ended up being very disabled. So, so he's not idealistic about medicine itself, but I think you're right. He, he wanted a sort of mechanical fix for this problem. Now, you mentioned the notion of ambiguity and tolerance of ambiguity. Mm. In your talk, you, you began to unpack what the research of his era and later mm. showed about what is it about certain medical students mm. that mean they end up choosing psychiatry. Mm. And tolerance of ambiguity seemed to be one of those key factors. Yes, that does come out. And of course, it's a bit hard to define and to operationalize. But I feel I know what it means. And I think most people do know what it means. If, if you really want the answer, uh, you're going to find psychiatry very difficult. That that shouldn't mean that we shouldn't we should stop looking for answers and trying to find clarity. So I think again, one of the, one of the mistakes of psychiatry is to give up too soon and just accept that you know there's no answers. That I think is what drives people into research, and that's what keeps me in research. Is that I can tolerate ambiguity, but I also like to know answers when I can. But when you can't, you have to just accept that position. Uh, and it is quite difficult. It is. Um, it makes the job quite stressful at times, just not knowing. Uh, but I think that's definitely uh, what, what, what a psychiatrist needs to have. One of the other factors that seemed to come out, if I read you correctly from your talk, was the notion that people choose psychiatry because they're in some sense troubled. They make, they're, they're um, not quite as as um as well psychologically mm. as the people who choose other branches of medicine yeah well i think the older literature brings that out and i think well that whole older literature is full of stereotypes whether it created the stereotypes or just picked them up that and 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 actually although psychiatrists are very sensitive about being stigmatized as being you know as ill as their patients to coin a phrase there's lots of stereotyping going on in other specialties. So that the literature of the 50s and 60s and 70s uh, paints uh, surgeons as aggressive, domineering, and general practitioners as very nice, but not that intellectual. So all of these are stereotypes which, you know, may have a grain of truth in them, but they're probably not that useful. So I don't think... So individually, maybe some people 
who've had troubled lives or troubled families, perhaps they are drawn into psychiatry. I think having a relative who's had a major mental illness, I have come across that a lot. I wasn't able to find any really good research, but I think that probably is a reason why some of some people become psychiatrists. But I don't really think we're any healthier or less healthier than, than the average the average doctor. Were there any other factors that struck you as being relevant in terms of the current recruitment crisis into psychiatry that we should be thinking about? Well, there is a lot of very good academic research now on this. And one of the findings, slightly uncomfortable findings, is that medical students at the beginning of their training at university are often much more positive about psychiatry and mental health than they are at their end of their training. So it suggests that, you know, something is going badly wrong in our training Um, and putting it more positively positive experiences during training having good role models uh, seeing patients really get better is very very transforming and positive and I guess uh, we've just got to teach more in a better way I think putting students on long-term wards of patients or in very difficult uh, community teams where patients can be quite difficult to talk to, especially, you know, in a short time that students have. That isn't a very positive experience for, for many. Whereas the sort of psychiatry that goes on in general practice, in the general hospital, that's much more in tune with the rest of their training. And often one sees people getting better very quickly. You know, we're all human. We all like to see that. And I think that will help a lot in our recruitment crisis. So you could almost say, um, and I I draw this from a hobby of mine, um, which is um, clay pigeon shooting. (laughs) And and, and if you go clay pigeon shooting for the very first time, you don't realize it's till later on, the instructor tries to make damn sure you hit a clay very early on by giving you a very simple one to hit. You don't realize that the first time. In other words, they understand the psychology, give the person a success experience very early on. Um, And we, we need to be doing that in psychiatry. I think that's right. And then comes the time where you've got to learn, like tolerating ambiguity, dealing with chronic ill health. That's also part of the job. Uh, but, you know, first things first. Now, there was another very interesting part of your talk where Oliver Sacks himself developed some kind of illness. It's yes. a bit unclear as to what it was, but it may have been a functional thing, which is a word we use to describe yes. when people haven't got anything physically wrong with them. Can you describe a little bit about what happened? Because it's quite in- interesting when he himself has to think about himself with a, with a, with a disorder. How, what happens then? Yes. Well, I must uh, pay tribute to uh, John Stone, Alan Carson, and Joe Pervin, who wrote this very clever reappraisal of a book that uh, Sachs wrote called A Leg to Stand On, uh, where he describes he, he was a very keen walker and climber, and he had this terrible fall uh, where he avulsed the uh, quadriceps muscle. It was very frightening, and he was in a plaster cast for a long time, and he had the, the experience which, again, only he could describe in such detail and so so eloquently of feeling that that just wasn't his leg he couldn't even feel it he couldn't move it and and trying to understand what had happened and so he had lots of theories about what it was and of course we know that the brain has uh, a, a body schema a sort of map of the body which isn't a faithful representation of the body as it were 
uh, in terms of its size and its coordinates. Partly it's to do with what bits of our body have the most sensory endings, which bits of the body are most valuable to us. So it's a sort of distorted uh, model. So we know that that can go wrong, and we know that the right parietal lobe of the brain is very important to our body schema, body image. And so Sachs wonders, well, did I have a small stroke affecting that part of the brain, perhaps? And then he thinks, no, there was no evidence for that. That can't be right. Could it be that I developed a functional neurological disorder or conversion disorder or hysteria, as we used to call it? And again, to be very fair to him, he gives that serious consideration. In the end, he rejects that. And he says it is a kind of body image disorder caused by the immobility, the immobilization of the limb, perhaps some of the, and, and, and its removal from sight by being in, encased in a plaster cast and all those other uh, things, uh, that that was enough to, as it were, get the brain to rewire a little bit temporarily. And that's why I found it difficult to move the limb or sort of see it as part of him. What uh, John Stone and colleagues said, well, no, this is just like having a functional neurological disorder when a patient comes into the neurology clinic saying, I can't move my leg, I'm weak down one side, I think I might have had a stroke, they haven't had a stroke, and uh, the neurologist can, can show that, in fact, the, the, the strength of the leg is still there uh, when tested in a special way, and that the person has just developed this functional disorder without having a brain lesion or a nerve lesion. So... What I'm interested in in Sachs' case is, as, as you say, it's very hard to be objective about your own experience in that circumstance. You need actually somebody to be able to talk you through what might be happening. But my speculation is that although we have a very good modern understanding now of functional disorders as probably disorder of attention, that, that we become either too focused on the limb, say in this case, or on gait and walking to the extent that we can't really walk normally because we're thinking about it too much. But along with that, there is also the fact that being ill means that you have certain privileges in society. You're absolved from certain responsibilities. And for some people, that just gets is too intoxicating. And I think that the psychiatrist has to take into account those sorts of social influences as well as understanding very sophisticated models of the brain and somehow put it together my speculation was that that was something that was just a step too far for Oliver Sacks. he didn't really want to go there and that's why he was not really a psychiatrist some people say that the, one of the best experiences a doctor can have to, to help improve them to be better doctors is to be a patient, Yes. to, to experience being a patient. And he experienced being a patient there. Yes. What, what do you think about the impact it had on him? And do you think, because I don't think it was a very pleasant experience at all for no. him. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering whether it actually made him a better doctor or yes. not. Yes. Well, of course, he often wrote about his own conditions, his um, face blindness, for example. And then he he had a simple ocular blindness that turned out to be a fatal condition in the end. But just losing stereoscopic vision, relying on vision in one eye, was enough for him to really deeply understand how that affects your place in the world. So he, he was the, the past master of looking at his own uh, health and ill health and uh, drawing incredible insights from it. So yes, I think that's a, that's a positive lesson. 
was made. Um, now, he was great at storytelling. Mm. He was also great at seeing the story. I mean, mm. doctors, unfortunately, as a result of their scientific and medical training, mm. start to see people as um, cases in the sense of a disorder of the liver or a disorder mm. of the brain. And they, they maybe because they're busy and it's mm. difficult to put all the, keep all the information in. But he could see the story. Yes. And it was very, it's, it's interesting how unusual it is because there are cracking stories in neurology all the time. Mm. How few there are are the doctors that can come along and see the story yes. and then tell it. And the same applies to psychiatry. Mm. I would actually argue we have even better stories in psychiatry yes. than they have in neurology. And yet very few people are able to see the story and also tell it. Yes. I mean, I think there are a few critics of Oliver Sacks, and they say he was a bit too fond of the story. And sometimes... It, the, the patient fit the story rather than the other way around. I think that's a bit unfair. Um, but it is the danger of the storytelling the, appetite, yes, isn't it? And that was the, it one is. of the criticisms of Freud and, and that, that case history approach. Exactly, it is. And, and again, some people say that Freud bent the, the truth a little bit to, to, for all for a better story. Yeah, I think that's a danger. Again, in psychiatry, well, I think every patient is an amazing story. And... I think when when one seeing patients with trainees, I think that's something that we can do is to just bring out the uniqueness and the interest, even in a, as it were, ordinary patient, common or garden patient. Nobody's common or garden. They've all got an interesting story. Again, we don't always have happy endings and we don't always resolve things. And, and that sort of ambiguity probably doesn't lead to very good books. The other thing is a lot of, there have been a lot of other people who have tried to do Oliver Sacks type books, and then you realise how good he was as a writer. That even with some very good uh, material, uh, not everyone can bring it to life in the way he could. And stick to the science. That's the that's, yes. the, that's the tricky yes. bit. Always bringing it back to the science, making sure he's up to date with it. I mean, again, people sometimes criticise him because he got some of the facts slightly wrong, but I I think usually he was he got it broadly right and you know that is important isn't it it's an educational function as well i want to go back to this point about the fact that the patients do have fascinating stories mm. and and going back to the recruitment crisis there is something really odd happening mm. if we're losing people despite the fact they're gripping stories yeah. in, in the outpatient department with every patient and on the wards and is it something about the institutionalized way in which psychiatry is practiced that squeezes the story yeah. out of the system so unfortunately because people are too busy they're ground down by clinics that are too full and they're constantly wrestling with risk and and mdt meetings and so on that, that we're losing the story I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think a lot of people would agree with you. They'd say, yes, I know these patients are incredibly interesting and I wish I had more time. Uh, I wish I was able to really find out what's going on, but I've got to do the checklist and the, and the tick box. I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, I think we all feel it. But on the other hand, we do have more time than other specialists. Again, that's a great selling point for psychiatry. We just have more time to do that. We've got to resist those other pressures. We've also got to, I think, fight to make sure that we're teaching uh, our students and re remaining up to date and skilled at eliciting the sort of information that is about making people come out, come alive, finding out what makes them different, rather than taking the easy option of just saying, yes, they fulfill a certain diagnostic criteria. That's partly our fault, because it's partly 
kind of easy and safe way out rather than really finding out what's going on underneath. It's impressed me that you're such a fan of Oliver Sacks because you're very much at the very rigorous hard end of the science of psychiatry. And normally people at that end are very um, suspicious or antagonistic to popularizers because they say popularizers are skating over the truth and they're getting it wrong. Um, and isn't it that we need people like Oliver Sacks to help with recruitment because we need people who get it right scientifically but tell a story because a lot of people are choosing medicine because of they saw George Clooney in ER, for yeah. example. It's the story or the fiction, but if it's if it can be accurately portrayed, that will inspire young people to pick the subject yes, up. I, I think I think that's right, and I think although he tells a good story, he isn't a simplifier. He doesn't tell simple stories. The attraction of the stories is their complexity. So I think people who who like that sort of writing have, have already sort of gone halfway there. Uh, yes, anyone can can simplify a story and make it uh, rote. Uh, but I think that was his great skill and talent. Can I just press you a little bit, though, on that point in terms of you're a fan of his, but what about the field in general, neurologists in general? What was your sense of what their view of him was? Because clearly he was a very popular person with the lay public and with the, with the world of literature yeah. and, and publishing. But what about at the hard end of neurologists? What did they think of him? Well, I said that sometimes some psychiatrists were a bit... Um, sniffy about him in, in liking the story too much and it tended to be the neurologist who would pick up and sort of minor errors of fact or that he was slightly out of date but I think neurologists do like Oliver Sacks I, I, I think the problem for neurology is it's hyper-specialization and there's not enough of the general neurologist anymore uh, in fact as we were talking before the interview that there is a sort of subspecialty talked about in America of the cognitive neurologist, and that also exists in the in the UK, although we're not so keen on that, and we, we have more of a tradition of the neuropsychiatrist. But so I, I think I think neurologists um, are quite happy with Oliver Sacks, but then sometimes their neurology is actually very distant from the brain and behavior. It's about the action potential or the basal ganglia or whatever. So one final question. If, if people were new to Oliver Sacks, mm. do, do you have a recommendation as to which book they should try first and how, do you have any signposts to their journey into the Oliver Sacks oeuvre? I think starting with Awakenings is probably the best place to start. That's where he started. And it all comes from that. You're, you're, you're discovering the patients, their response to treatment, the disappointments, the joys with him. Uh, I think that really is very, 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 very good. And then the uh, anthropologist on Mars is also very accessible. And the idea, I think, is very current, very modern. This idea about rather than seeing everyone as disabled or impaired, but more seeing people as all different. And sometimes impairments can be an advantage. Again, not to go too far and romanticize, which is, I think, another danger and a pitfall, but at least not to write everybody off. Uh, before we've got to know them. Professor Anthony David, thank you very much indeed.